All right, let's, uh, that's on page 133, uh, chapter 28 of baptism. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be with my brothers. I pray you bless us as we read the Westminster Confession. I pray that we would be well-grounded in the word of God on the great truths that you have revealed to us in Scripture. And we thank you for our Lord's work in building his church and protecting it from error and uh, giving it the minds that it has needed to stand its ground and to maintain the purity of the gospel and of the truth of everything that you have said. And we pray that you would bless our conversation and discussion during this time, uh, that we would understand these great truths better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Okay, as you remember, chapter 27 is just about sacramental theology in general. And that's, that's such an important chapter, the chapter right before baptism in the Lord's Supper. I've always thought, um, historically, that is such an important thing, to spell out what you, what you believe about sacraments, because there's been so much confusion about baptism and the Lord's Supper, you know, really almost from the beginning. You have all these odd ideas about it, and um, I've been, uh, uh, John and Luke are doing church history right now, so when we meet for their seminary work, we, we sit and talk about everything they're learning in these church history books, and it's really, really interesting um, stuff, but you see these errors creeping in very early on, so much so that we were actually just, last time we met, we were talking about this notion of postponing baptism until right before you died. Have you guys ever heard of that? The early church did, <laughs> did that. By the time you get to, like, the middle of the 200s, 300s, people are doing that. They, their view of baptism is so superstitious, and they know you can only do it once in your entire life, so they would postpone it till like 15 minutes before you died. Cause, oh, wow. Yeah, because it was like, it forgives you of all of your past sins, but then what do you do with post-baptismal sin, you know? Yeah. And so those kinds of, of beliefs about sacraments, they come in early on, and it's a real shame to see uh, the way the church really struggled to understand the significance of baptism. And to me, the most important part, the, mo the most important thing about sacramental theology to remember is that God's word talks about the signs as if they are what they signify at times. And that, that's a pattern God establishes right at the very beginning when he institutes circumcision. You know, I still remember, and I've preached on this enough times, it's kind of like tattooed to my brain, Genesis seventeen ten, He says, this is my covenant. The cir circumcision. Now, circumcision is not a covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. But he calls it what it signifies. Same way with the bread and the wine. This but is my body. It's the circumcision, the circumcision of the spirit. That's right. It's the covenant. It's That's not right. the physical. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that is another thing. Remember, see what it says in point one here at the very top of page 134? Baptized into the visible church. Okay, the understanding of the visible church and the invisible church is essential to understanding sacramental theology too. Because baptism is not a sign that you necessarily are in the invisible church, but rather that you're part of the visible covenant community, which has always been from the beginning to the end of the Bible, those that profess 
the true religion, those that profess to know God and their households. And it's always been that way. It's from, from day, day one to the very, I remember listening to R.C. Sproul years ago uh, talking about baptism when I was really struggling with it. And he, he had this little throwaway line that I remembered because it, it just really resonated as true. He said, when it comes to the administration of the covenant of grace, we don't have circumcision, we have baptism, and it's business as usual, meaning you still have households that, are, that come into the visible church together. And I thought, yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's true. It's just business as usual. The apostles didn't really think anything of it. They baptized households without any big, long apologetic argument or we got to refute this idea or that idea. It's just, well, of course. Of course they're going to come into the church with you. And that took a while, being raised in Baptistic circles, to kind of change the way I thought about that. But you think, yeah, that is the way it, it reads. It just yeah. looks like it wasn't a big deal to them. So, okay. <clears throat> Point number two. The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, by a minister of the gospel, lawfully called thereunto. Okay, and that's really just to keep anarchy from happening, so you don't have, you know, people baptizing each other in their bathtubs and stuff like that. It needs to be done in the context of, of a worship service with witnesses and everything else. Okay, three, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary. But baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Okay, And we, we would maintain that that captures better what baptism is a sign of. The sprinkling of the blood of Christ, the washing of the person. Uh, a lot of folks will say, well, the, the Greek verb baptizo means to immerse. And our response is, it can mean to immerse, but it doesn't always mean that. Uh, for example, the Pharisees, we know the Pharisees baptized their couches and baptized their furniture. What does that mean? It means they sprinkled water on them. They didn't take their couches out of their houses and, and immerse them in the Jordan River or something. Okay, also in the Old Testament in Leviticus 14, um, in the Greek Old Testament in Leviticus, it says that you're to take the blood of one of the birds and baptize the other bird in it. And I remember R.C. Sproul saying you're, in his debate with John MacArthur, no matter how hard you wring out that first yeah. bird, you're not going to get enough blood to immerse the other bird in it. Yeah. What it meant was you sprinkled it with it. So the whole idea of the pouring out of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ is better captured uh, by, the, uh, by sprinkling or pouring. <clears throat> okay. <coughs> you miss the essence of it, though, because we get caught up in the physicality of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. it's not about that. It's, it's not, yeah. It is about... The symbolic of the spirit, the mm -hmm. spiritual things that are going on. That's right. Always remember, sacraments are signs of something else. That's the whole point. And that's why God said to uh, Abraham, this is the sign. He's not saying this automatically means this or that. It's really incredible. The signs that are supposed to unify us and be um, to, to point us to Christ, people have focused so much on them. Yeah, they've missed the, the fact that, that's why I try to emphasize that when take the Lord's Supper. These are signs. Remember what these point to is the blood and, and body of Jesus. You're supposed to be focused on him, what he did at the cross and, and, and his death and everything. Okay, number four. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. You guys know that passage, that 1 Corinthians 7 passage that speaks about the children are holy. Okay, let's, let's look at that real quick here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, I, this passage really isn't directly addressing baptism per se, but it is addressing the status 
of a child born to uh, one, at least one Christian parent. Um, let's look back a little bit, look at verse um, 12 of 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians seven twelve. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, now, one of the arguments that our, our Baptist brethren will say is, well, if you're going to say that this has something to do with the infants or the children of being baptized, and you're going to have to say the unbelieving spouse has to be baptized too. But it doesn't say that the unbelieving spouse is holy as opposed to unclean. It's talking about the resultant offspring of a marriage where there's a believer and an unbeliever. And the point is, th those two terms, holy and unclean, I actually went through this exercise and did this. I remember reading this thinking, that that is manifestly language you see constantly in the Old Testament. You're unclean versus holy. And that meant inside the camp or outside the camp. You know those passages from Leviticus we don't read very often? If you have a discharge or you have this or you have that, you're outside, you are unclean until evening or whatever. That meant you're outside the camp. If you're holy, then you're part of the community. You're part of the assembly, the church. And that's manifestly what this is talking about. Those two terms are used in juxtaposition with each other, holy versus unclean in the Old Testament, like 150 times. And that's what he's invoking here. And there's really no way of getting around. In fact, I've not, I don't think I've ever read a commentator on this passage that misses that point. This is manifestly covenantal language, saying your children are holy. They are part of the church. Do you think people don't really get that today? Because if you read through the Old and a lot of people don't spend enough time in the Old Testament. What they had to do because they didn't have Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and, it was and, very elaborate. And then when you get into the New Testament, how, you know, we do a lot of things in spirit now mm -hmm. versus the physical part yeah. of having to do it. Mm -hmm. It is a better covenant. Because trying to work out the remissions of our sin, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we don't have to, to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to slaughter, you know, a, a little lamb every year. I mean, most of us, we're not from an agrarian society anyway. I mean... We'd have to go and buy one of those marked up lambs at Jerusalem. It's just the, you know, it's the falling away of the Jewish people and then the being subjugated by some other Amalekites or somebody <coughs> out there, you know, Philistines. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, the, the wailing and whining for, for God and mm -hmm. finally he hears them and gives them a, <laughs> mm -hmm. gives them a prophet to, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just repeated over yeah. and over. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and if you, if you really get that, then then you understand why, you know, and everything points toward Jesus in the Old Testament anyway. Yeah, that's right. And that's what all that was for, was to create in them a longing for the coming of Christ. And that's why when we, we talked about the, the section of God's covenant, you wonder, what did the Pharisees really think about Passover? What did they think it was about? Since they did, they did not think that they were sinners. That's one thing in, in reading through Luke's gospel and preaching it, it's, it's really come bearing down on me. This guy is a friend of sinners. He eats with sinners. They didn't think they were part of that category. Yeah. They really well, didn't. That, that's the, uh, that's when the physicality <clears throat> of everything that you're doing puffs mm -hmm. you up as a person. Yeah. But it also shows, I think, that God has given us visible, tangible signs mm -hmm. as well. 
they're not as vivid as, as they were in the Old Testament. They're administered with less outward glory, um, but they're there to bear down on us again. To, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the cost of, of our sin uh, to be saved. And that, that's why I'm, I'm a proponent of more frequent partaking of it, because it, it really, it's a constant reminder, this was the cost of your salvation. This well, is the cost. the question of how often do we need to hear the gospel? Yeah, all the time, every day. <laughs> what day don't we sin? Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I was this morning, this morning editing a, a manuscript. I'm just going to self-publish through through Amazon. And every time I reread the stuff I've already written, I, I make it even longer and like expand it even more. And I'm like, did I already say this somewhere else? I'm like, it doesn't matter. I need to say it again and emphasize it again. This has got to, you got to get this across uh, to people that it's Christ alone who saves us. And it's always Christ alone who saves us. So, okay. Um, all right, point number five, next page. Although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Okay, so the Westminster Divines, you know, they came out of the Roman Catholic tradition there. They're, you know, a century after the Reformation, but they're still trying to make sure they protect the sovereignty of God's spirit there. God is the one who saves and regenerates. Uh, yeah, the signs are important. We should have the highest view that we can that Scripture gives us, but they are never a substitute for what God does upon the soul. Okay, point six. I love that point six is so important. The efficacy of baptism is not tied. Actually, this is my copy of the confession. I have it not tied underlined twice. It's not tied to that moment of time wherein is it, it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his uh, appointed time. One of the modern um, movements that has really, really denied this is the Federal Vision. You guys hear me harp on that all the time. Those are the two, the Federal Vision and the New Perspectives on Paul, whether you've ever studied either one, those are the two biggest challenges to the gospel in modern history. They both are. In fact, I just started reading a book that Guy Waters, is a professor I had in seminary, just they edited and published not too long ago, where they a whole bunch of Reformed scholars and, and pastors address both of those issues. But they think that baptism actually unites you to Christ, and you get all the benefits of the covenant of grace when you're baptized. And that's why they're saying here, it's not tied to the moment of administration because they came out of a, a religious idea that, that taught that. And it's extremely dangerous to think that, that baptism automatically does this side or the other thing. And that's why they're saying, look, the efficacy of baptism is, is that of a signifying seal. And that's all it is. It's a seal, a sign and seal. God is at work here. But you don't get what baptism is a sign of unless you have faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, same thing with circumcision. I mean, what what could be more obvious in the Old Testament? Not everybody that was circumcised was saved. Mm-hmm. I mean, Esau, Ishmael, you know, they were well, not saved. Today. I'm sorry. You know, even today. Yeah, of course. Because it's it's interesting because when I was in the army, there were guys that were getting circumcised later in life, and mm-hmm. it becomes this. It, it's a sanitary aspect, right? You know, right. Mm-hmm. And, and so you say, well, God, with good reason, told people to get circumcised. So there were other tangible benefits to what right. went along with mm-hmm. the the physical sign of 
Yeah. And, and which makes sense, you know, because mm -hmm. most things that God directs us to do mm -hmm. are good for us anyway, whether That's we right. realize them right away or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Like all the, the foods that all the animals that they were forbidden to eat actually are not very good They're for you. not good for you. Yeah, pigs, yeah. shellfish, bottom feeders. Yeah. Um, I've wondered too, like I, you can't prove this, but all the stuff about not sowing um, different seeds together, yeah. I've wondered if that's not, if there's not something about GMOs and genetic, playing around with genetics and stuff. Well, I'm, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind know. of a believer in that, you know, because yeah. you, you see the whole gluten-free yeah. phenomenon going on now. But there is a different genetic makeup of the modified wheat that we have today versus right. the ancient grains. So and I wonder, structurally, it, yeah. it's different. It's the proteins and everything, and it chemically, it's a different. It's a different food. And you wonder, can our bodies not handle that? Is that part well, of the problem? And, and some with it's like you know nuts. Mm -hmm. Some people can eat them. Some people, if the nuts in the pan yeah. that they cooked with, yeah, it can be deadly serious for them. You know, yeah. so mm -hmm. so there's you know there's. You know, I think there's a lot of things that impact us today, and a lot of things do go right back to the, yeah. you know, what Scripture tells us. You know, yeah. we, we know a lot about pork, where they were abstaining from pork. Mm -hmm. There's virtually no pork that's really that good for you. You know, we, we like it, you know, because we like our bacon and our that's sausage. Right. And, I don't know. It, yeah. Okay, and people are certainly free to do that. They're free to keep those Old Testament laws, but they're not free to obligate others to, to do it. It might be wise to, but, um, you know. Well, you, you have to, you know, you know, if you're 20 years old, bacon isn't going to hurt right. you much. You know? But if you're an 80-year-old with high blood pressure and hypertension, yeah. Yeah. you might want to maybe eat some turkey instead. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <clears throat> um, so just remember that. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of administration. But um, uh, Can I yeah. pause for a second? Mm -hmm. um, so the coming from... You know, some of these baptismal regeneration circles. Mm -hmm. uh, Acts 2.38 was always one of the big ones that they pushed. Mm -hmm. So, like, what, what's kind of a good way to uh, talk about that verse? Because yeah. that, that, that's a big one that, that's heavily uh, yeah. emphasized, I think. Yeah, let's look at that one, Acts, Acts 2.38. Yeah, if you ever hear debates with the Church of Christ, that's like the... They would kind of say, just read this. It's, tell, <laughs> it's telling you what it says. Yeah. The first point is that um, you derive your theology and your doctrine primarily from didactic or teaching portions of scripture, not primarily from historical narratives. So that's the first place. Like you think of um, Pentecostalism, so much of the defense of Pentecostalism comes from the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is, is the record of a transition period between the Old and the New Testament. It's also the age of the apostles, but Acts 2, 8, 10, and 19 you see people speaking in tongues that they make that normative for today. And you think, well, we don't live in the age of the apostles, <coughs> excuse me, but that's not primarily where you derive your theology. You get your theology from the teaching, from the epistles and from the teaching portions of scripture. And then you understand the narratives in light of that. But yeah, Acts two thirty eight. Um, after Peter preaches there at Pentecost, the people are convicted at the end of verse 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. 
And so, yeah, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Really, that preposition means unto or as a sign of is really what it's saying. But you wouldn't want to, if you, let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, they're right. Baptism actually remits all your sins. Why does Paul fail to bring this up in his chapters and chapters of discussion of how we're justified before God? We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Where's baptism? If if baptism is the means by which this happens, why does he leave this off? And that was one of the, that's why years ago I was like, I know they're wrong about this, but I just, I don't know how to respond to this. But there you, you have it again, baptism as a sign of or unto remission of sins, sacramental language again. God speaking of the sign as if it does what it signifies. Well, it's, it's you got to separate, to me, and maybe it's more of a pragmatic approach that I have, is you got to separate the emotionalism. Because yeah. if you've been to some of those immersions, mm-hmm. they become a very emotional thing for the person yeah. It's going through it, and then the whole crowd is getting, you know, kind of yeah. joined in it, and it it becomes an emotional, spiritual thing for people, and that's yeah. where, you know, you're kind of almost getting into, like, a semi-charismatic mm-hmm. mode when you do that, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. that's the thing that, you know, and then I have other people that say, well, you guys are part of the the frozen Presbyterians, so you don't, <laughs> you know, yeah, you guys are I said, dead. I said, you have to be careful about the, yeah. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with someone being outward and emotional. Yeah, that's it. fine. Mm-hmm. But I said, you have to be careful about that because yeah. I've seen a lot of things, a lot of people, you know, the thing I used to question in a Baptist church when they had the altar calls, if you were there long enough, you saw the same people walking down the altar. I know, every Sunday. Yeah. And it became kind of a thing where, it, it was almost, I think, some of those people just got the charge of walking down the aisle, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. whether or not it, it had an impact on their life, you know. Yeah. That's the assumption today is that the spirit is at work where you see lots of hoopla and like lots mm-hmm. of like outward emotion and things like that. Now, certainly that's, that happens and people do become emotionally in charged and excited and happy and that's all fine. To me, the real proof that the spirit is at work is um, a guy becomes a much better husband that week. Right, right. And he is better at loving his wife, and he's less selfish, and he um, has more integrity and things like that. Those are the real fruits of the spirit. I mean, the fruits of the spirit are not running around and acting crazy. Mm -hmm. But people think that is. People think, see, the spirit was really moving there. Well, Well, are are you sure about that? A lot of those sensational, you know, video pastors use, yeah. you know, they'll sell that stuff. As mm-hmm. It's entertaining. Yeah. We're not entertaining. We'll never be on TV. <laughs> yeah. well, how are they on Monday? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Hung over, feeling weird from yeah. you know, falling down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those different revivals and things that took place in Florida. There was one in Florida, Brownsville in the 1990s. There was the Toronto Vineyard in the 1990s. And I read some books about what was going on at those places. And it was it was pandemonium. And a lot of good um, ministers and preachers, you know, went to see what is going on here. And there's, there was no preaching. There was no um, preaching Christ and him crucified. There was no call to true, repentance. True gospel message. Was yeah. Not People don't like that stuff. They don't, now. yeah, they don't like, they want the, the feel good kind of stuff. But but you can't squelch all of that because sometimes people are deeply moved by yeah, the sure spirit. Are. Yeah. 
So you just gotta, you have to have discernment. If, if that kind of reaction is being created with no word of God uh, being preached or read or taught, then I would really question it. And that was one thing our forefathers really emphasized, especially during the Reformation. The Holy Spirit works through the word. He works through the word. It's just so often today, it's, we don't want someone up there telling us about a bunch of theology or a bunch of, a bunch of exposition of God's word. The spirit was at work. And it's like the spirit works through the word. That's the key thing to remember. That's why we emphasize that the way we do. Well, you know, it was always, when I was growing up, it was, if you went to a church and you walked out and you felt really good about it, something mm -hmm. was missing, you know? Yeah. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, not to say that every message really just, you know, works on your heart, but right. if you go to church week in, week out, and that mm -hmm. never Maybe you're not. Maybe the message, that, mm -hmm. maybe the preaching is not from yeah. from scripture. But scripture will, yeah. you know. It should. It will. It either converts you, sanctifies you, or offends you. Right. And eventually, you know, so, someone shouldn't be able to sit in the church Sunday after Sunday for years and never be either so offended that they they just walk out or saved. Offense so. or convict. Yeah. Right. That's mm -hmm. the to me the. The, the difference, you know, mm -hmm. if you get offended, then you have some other things you got to work out. If you're convicted, you're mm -hmm. rightfully. Yeah, I had some really good professors in seminary that really emphasized this. Like you guys are heralds of someone else's message, so your your preaching might empty your church and get you killed. So just be aware of that. That doesn't, that doesn't mean you're not successful. And I remember thinking, yeah, this one professor had us read a book called Freedom from the Success Syndrome. It was a great book. And it was, you're called upon to deliver this message no matter what happens. Like, what happens is ultimately going to depend on what God's Spirit wants to happen. And he may want really bad things to come to pass through your faithfulness. Because the evangelist you <clears throat> talked about last week. Was that you that talked about that? Mm -hmm. The yeah, the with the the horse that went out west. Oh yeah, yeah, David Brainerd. Yeah, yeah. I had heard that story before. The and, poor guy. Yeah, and you know, just some amazing people mm -hmm. that went out, and in their life, they probably thought that they didn't do anything. He, he didn't. You know? He but, he was depressed. <laughs> but it's the yeah. work that, that, that God did. You know. Thing is, though, by, by the end of the, his life, when when his health got too bad for to be there, he had a little he had a little congregation of Indians, and he was convinced that they really were believers that they had really come to Christ. But it took him a long time to like, learn those dialects, and like he was always sick. He was so sick um, because of the tuberculosis mm -hmm. that he had for like eight years before it finally killed him. But yeah. He, he was very successful um, in the sight of God. I think he was a favorite in heaven because he prayed so hard and worked so hard. Probably, you know, American Indians today mm -hmm. that are a legacy of yeah. the work that he did. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's like some, um, the first Christians that came here, that's what they really wanted to do. They wanted to evangelize the native inhabitants here. The first book ever published in America, ever, was the Bible in Algonquin. And you can go to places in New England, as, I, as I've read, you can go and see pictures um, and uh, paintings of Indian theologians and pastors and missionaries that um, came to Christ because of those efforts. So how in the world in a public school can you teach history without... You can't, not accurately, without, yeah. Without religion. 
Not accurately. It's steeped in history. Mm-hmm. You know, for years, and, and even today, it's still, you know, intermingled. In, I know. You know, and, and they act like we've always been a secular nation. We weren't. You can't separate yeah, we people weren't. from from faith. Mm-hmm. You can't. All right, let's push it for uh, point number seven. Really important. Sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered unto any person. Okay, so that that does raise some some thorny pastoral questions because a lot of times. Um, if people were baptized in a in a heretical group, you would need to. It's not rebaptism. It's you need to baptize them for the first time. Um, but that that's happened a couple times. Um, I'm kind of a, a lone ranger. I don't. I do not believe um, baptism in the Roman Catholic Church is legit Christian baptism. But most of our forefathers think that it was. <clears throat> My biggest issue is even based on our own confession. I don't believe a Catholic priest in any way, shape, or form can be considered to be a minister of the gospel. I just don't. And I think that their ritual that they call baptism is a parody of Christian baptism. But Calvin and Charles Hodge, they, they thought it was. And I remember when I was ordained or ordained in Westminster Presbytery, they were like, pressed me on that subject. I'm like, I don't, I will submit to you guys, but I don't believe it's real baptism. So, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> All right, chapter 29 of the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Now, brethren... The, the main place in scripture that you can go to, to really understand what the Lord's Supper is is 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Those are the two passages. And so really, almost everything that we can say about the Lord's Supper is in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. And the fact is, there's not a whole lot in scripture that describes the Lord's Supper. That's one of the things about, like, there's so, the debates about the mode of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper and stuff are like, they just go on forever. Do this in remembrance of me is the thing that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> the most. That's what it's, he said to do. Not, yeah. It's mm-hmm. not do this because you're consuming me. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Point two in the sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sins of the quick or dead. Why do you, why do you think they put that in there? <laughs> The mass, <laughs> the Roman Catholic mass, because they think the priest is doing that. He's offering up Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins, not only of the people that are present in the room, but also for the dead in purgatory. So it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Okay. But only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Okay, guys, think about the book of Hebrews. What is the term that's used in there over and over again? Once for all, once for all, once for all. He he offered up himself once for all. Okay, not not that he's being represented over and over and over again or anything like that. Okay, point three. 
The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants. You know why they said that too? To give both to the communicants? Because for a very, very long time, um, the, was it the bread or the wine? What, I think the wine was withheld from the church. And only, only the bread was given. I, I've never known why they did that, but in the medieval period, that, that happened for a very long time. And so they were saying both are supposed to be given to the people. What a weird thing, though. Okay, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. Okay, I, remember I saw it. Um, I heard of of an ad that was in the newspaper. Uh, a church had put this in the newspaper. This Sunday we're doing communion to go. They had like hermetically sealed packets of wine and crackers. So people would pick them up on the way out. Yeah, and then take them at home. And and it was like, um, this is to illustrate that, that our religion is to be taken out into the world. <laughs> Think, okay, we're not free to do things like that, no. okay? Now, the thing is, when we've had shut-ins of people that are, are real sick or they're close to dying, the elders of the church will go and have a communion service with them with, and people. with them there and with their family and with um, people that know Christ. But, you know, um, the elders have to go do that. But that's a that's an exception, not a rule. That's only if someone just can't make it to to church and they they really um, want to take the Lord's Supper. So and we've done that before um, with folks, and uh, we did that with uh, our dearly departed sister just shortly before she went on to glory. And it was it was really encouraging. She picked a couple hymns that we she wanted us to sing, and it sounded glorious in that room. And I just read from. Um, Mark 14 about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he fell down and was praying and just talked about the gospel, the cross. And this is what you, you know, you want to die believing in the all sufficiency of this. And if you do, you have eternal life. It's that simple. So I just love how simple it is. Glorious. All right. Point number four, private masses are receiving this sacrament by a priest or any other alone as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and the reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. And so what this is attacking is in the medieval period, because of the, the rise of the idea of transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and the wine become Jesus Christ, excuse me, they would reserve whatever was left and put it in a little tabernacle in the church and people could come in the week and worship it because that's Jesus. And they also would do um, processions in the streets and carry these around, and people would follow in the streets. And every Sunday, one of my kids, can we go get eat the leftover communion bread? I said, and I always say, we're not Catholic. Yes, okay, it's still just bread. Go eat it, so it doesn't go to waste. But so we don't need that. We don't do that. We don't reserve the elements. Actually, when I was in Cincinnati, because it was like. Roman Catholic Mecca. I used to listen to Catholic radio just for kicks. And I remember one time, it was so interesting, this uh, woman calls in to this Catholic radio program. We have a new priest at our church. He's young, and his uh, vestments uh, brushed up against the bread, and there were crumbs on his um, sleeve. Yeah. And as he was sitting up there, he brushed them off. 
onto the floor. And the, the host was aghast that he yeah. would do this. Because that's Jesus. <laughs> and you think, I, just, I, mean, I, I still remember where I was driving my car. I just thought, wow, that is just horrifying. It totally miss, misses the whole well, you point. Know, if, if you go up there, like I used to travel in and out of Pittsburgh, and you always have like priests walking through the airport, and they have all their garb on. Right. You know, you know mm-hmm. their robes and their... The clerical collar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know why they wear those? I actually did not know that until relatively recently. You know why they wear the collars? Because mm-hmm. Paul always identifies himself as a bond slave, and slaves historically would wear would have a collar. And so that that's where that tradition comes from. And I thought, wow. Mm-hmm. Man, that's, yeah, whatever. <clears throat> okay. Uh, point number six, the doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. Okay, so it's still bread. When, when we pray for the bread and pray for the wine, we're simply setting them apart uh, for that holy use. They're still bread and wine. They don't, nothing happens to the bread or to the, to the wine. Okay, point seven. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporeally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corpor- corporally or carnally, that, that means physically, in, with, and under the bread and wine. You know why they added that, in, with, and under? That's the Lutheran concept. That's exactly how they say it. Lutherans say Jesus Christ is in, with, and under the bread. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. But they, they put that in there for that specific purpose. Yet, as really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Morton Smith, who is uh, one of the founders of Greenville Seminary, who's also the very first clerk of the PCA, he died not too long ago, but he wrote a really good systematic theology, really great, solid theologian. I listened to a series of lectures he did, like Introduction to Theology, and he had a really good one-liner that, that captured um, what the Lord's Supper is. He, says, he said, it's bread in the mouth and Christ in the heart. And wine in the mouth, Christ in the heart. It's like you want to summarize it real succinctly for your people. After all the debates and all the dust has settled and you look at the key passages, that's really what it is. It's not a mere memorial. There is, there is a real sanctifying influence there. But it's not physical and carnal either. Okay, so it's, you take bread and wine and it's still bread and wine. But there's a benefit that Christ strengthens our heart, strengthens our assurance. That's really what it is. It's a, it's a means of strengthening our faith in Christ and our assurance that we really belong to him. So, yeah. All right. Point eight. Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby. But by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. And again, historically, the reason they said that is even Lutherans say that unworthy, unregenerate people do receive benefit from the Lord's Supper. And the Reformed churches were like, what benefit can an unbeliever receive from this? They're still unbelievers. 
they're still in their sins and under God's condemnation. So what are you talking about? But there were big written debates, you know, Calvin and there was a, I love this guy's name, Kyleman Hesusius was his name, a Lutheran theologian. They went back and forth because Hesusius kept saying, no, 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 the unbeliever receives benefit. And, and our guys were like, what benefit do they receive if they're unregenerate? Yeah. Is it, but, and that's why this is here. Okay. Yeah, what benefit did Judas yeah, right. From all his time with Jesus, none at all. Yeah. Uh, wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. Do you guys remember when I, I, I preached on worthy participation in the Lord's Supper and how unfortunate it is the way that term is used in English by us? Because we think you can partake unworthily. People think that that means I'm not righteous enough to take it. Mm-hmm. When, when really, to partake unworthily means you're an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Or you're in some kind of gross, scandalous sin that you're not repentant of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understanding your brokenness and your need for salvation, that's the key to worthy participation in the Lord's Supper. People read that all the time and they're like, oh. I don't think I could ever worthily partake and like, no, that's the whole point is that, is that you, you do see that. So you should partake of it. Yeah. But so you'll have to deal with that. Like try to, try to help people understand that, that A they should. A refreshing thing for me has always been like my oldest son and I'll share this with you guys. I've seen him not take it mm. before because he was convicted about things that were, yeah, that was, and, and his mom, you know, my wife would get, I said, well, he's wrestling with some things yeah. right now. Yeah. And, and I said, actually, that's a refreshing thing because when I talk with him about it, you know, mm-hmm. he explained to me some things that were going on and mm-hmm. he just didn't feel yeah. right. And, yeah. and so I said, the fact that you were recognizing that mm-hmm. is is more reassuring to me than, than yeah. you just picked it up and... yeah." went through the motions with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that's legit. If someone, you know, has if they have sin in their life and they maybe they they haven't really let go of it in the way they they need to, yeah, maybe they should refrain um from partaking. Um uh, because you, you I always think of okay, David. When David was in, engaged in his cover-up. David was still a believer. Mm-hmm. David still was a child of God, but he was in morbid sin there. Mm-hmm. You know, and after he repents and the whole thing with Nathan comes and rebukes him and he repents, right after that happens, it says he immediately, um, after the child dies, he goes into the house of the Lord and worships. And you think, okay, so yeah, if there's unrepentant sin, if there's a sin I'm kind of covering or I'm not addressing the way I need to, to try to really declare war on it, yeah, maybe you shouldn't partake. So yeah. Okay. Uh, of church censures, chapter 30. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government uh, in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Okay, so you guys have heard, probably heard me mention before, but it's a very important biblical concept. It's not talked about as much as it should be, but it, it really needs to be. There are four spheres of government that God has created. God is a God of government. There's the state, there's the church, there's the family, and then there's the self, the individual Okay, and everything really is tied back to self-government. If we don't govern ourselves, then no, nothing else That's works. Yes, That's the, always the problem. Um, but also, when spheres of government, like the magistrate or the church or the family, when they try to do each other's jobs, 
mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Okay, and that and that's why it's important that we know what is the magistrate supposed to do, and what are they not supposed to do. What is the church supposed to do, and not do, and what is the family's responsibility? Well, we see that going on in our society today. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. With schools trying to educate kids on things they have no business educating. That's right. Kids on. Yeah, and uh, there's nothing more comprehensively religious than education. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And that's why people think we got to separate, you know, church from from state, or you can't have religion in the classroom. You've already got religion yeah, in the but, classroom. But people have yeah. to understand where the roots of the public education system came from in this country. Mm-hmm. Dewey, the father of the modern modern education system, is what? Yeah, <laughs> he's a he's a he's a he was a socialist. That's right, and a pragmatist. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's it, no no less of an authority than Thomas Jefferson himself mm-hmm. said. That the idea of taxpayer-funded, government-controlled education, he said that is, that idea is sinful and tyrannical. Mm-hmm. And the guys at Old Princeton, uh, Archibald Alexander Hodge, um, in the mid-19th century, in the 18, like 50s or 60s, had delivered a series of lectures. And he said, if we go this direction, this government school system will be the most efficient producer of atheism that the world has ever seen. Well, what do we see? Exactly that. <laughs> you do. We're in the age of that. Now now it's it's like it's, illegal to teach creation. It's, it's amazing our forefathers warned us about so many they things did. and we're we're living exactly what they told us would happen. Yep. There's a conference that's gonna happen in Florida, uh, on I think it's the sixteenth, so it's like next week at where Maria's going to college down at Reformation Bible College, it's on Machen. Christianity and liberalism, and they're gonna they're gonna like make parallels. He has, a, you know, I've done a bunch of podcasts on his book that's a hundred years old now, because everything he's attacking there is happening now. Well, it, too. you read his book, it's it's almost like it's a contemporary. Book. It is. You, you keep know, reminding well, yourself this is a hundred years old. Yeah, yeah. This is before. So <laughs> yeah. can you imagine if he was around today, what he would think about where we are? Mm-hmm. You know. Just republish the book, like edit it a little bit. Yeah, republish it. It's the same old stuff. Okay, so there's a distinct church government. So that's a, the, really what's the point of point one there. Point two, to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. By virtue whereof, they have power, respectively, to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. Okay, so the elders of the church hold the keys of the kingdom, meaning that they admit people to membership, to communion, uh, to baptism, um, and can also censure people if they offend or sin or or go off the tracks. Okay, notice we have the keys of the kingdom. We don't have the sword. (laughs) Okay, the magistrate has has the sword. We just have the keys of the kingdom. Okay, And, and of course in the home, the family has what? For punishment. The rod of correction. So in every, in each sphere, there's government, there's rules, and there's um, uh, retribution for wrongdoing. Okay, in each one of them. So, okay. Um, But the retribution is to bring about repentance. Exactly, exactly. That's the point of it. It's not to be punitive upon them. Yeah. Except in the state... Retribution is not is not primarily that. It's just well, that even the scales of justice. Yeah, but they're, yeah. well, when I, I should have tempered that. Yeah, with a, fam- a family is, and churches. There, there is, is places mm-hmm. of punitive, right? Yes. Cases of murder and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's right. Because that's not really aimed at um, bringing about their repentance. It's just <laughs> bringing about their death um, or or fines or whatever. Notice in the Old... We could talk about this forever, but the, the Old Testament judicial system, there's no such thing as prison. Mm-hmm. You either made retribution or you died. Or you would have to work for that person until you paid off what whatever you did. So, yeah, that, that's much better. That's much... People would, people would fear the law more if we did that instead. Whereas that's the thing that blows my mind. People get, you know, murdered a whole bunch of people and they're sentenced to life in prison. And you think that's, that's not justice. No, it's if not. someone did that. Yeah. We get well, to pay for why, them. Yeah. Well, and you can see our, <coughs> with like the liberal, they don't understand our whole legal system is premised on biblical laws. Really. Mm-hmm. If you, if you come from the Roman Mm-hmm. The Roman, we have Roman law, which went to the English common law, which we've adopted. Right. And Roman law was essentially instituted from, you know, biblical yeah. law in many respects. Yeah. And it borrowed from Jewish law or mm-hmm. Greek law. And mm-hmm. But even even the state today, I mean, most prisons are called correctional facilities because mm-hmm. they really think it's their job to reform people and to fix them and to get them back in society there, there was a documentary that came out about remember john wayne gacy the oh, clown dude yeah, that killed yeah. oh, the, was... i didn't know I, I did not realize this he had been convicted of sodomy when he was in iowa and was sentenced to 10 years in prison and they paroled him after like 18 months and then he went out and killed like 33 more people i think he should have been put to death for that yeah for, but, so he wouldn't, but they thought, no, we fixed him. He's reformed. He, he's good to go in society now. And it's like, no, he wasn't. But yeah, it's horrifying. Anyway, yeah, he was, he was really horrible. <laughs> the killer clown, they called him. They had him and then they're not too long after that. You had Dahmer. Jeffrey right? Dahmer. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And he was sentenced to life in prison to like 18 terms or whatever for all the people he killed. All right. Number three, church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. Exactly. For deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out of that leaven, out, out, of, out of that leaven which might affect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, <clears throat> and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. <laughs> it's pretty strongly worded, isn't it? And yet, guys, if you want to see that in action, First Corinthians. Remember the stuff that was going on there in Corinth? There was a guy that was uh, being immoral with his um, his mother. mother. Yeah, and you think... And obviously, I don't think it was his, his blood mother. It was his father's well, wife. wife yeah. But Paul said, you guys have got to throw him out of the church. And apparently he repented and came back. And then he, and then in Second Corinthians he tells them to, you know, reaffirm your love for him, lest he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's a big problem though. If you have notorious sin like that, you have to you have to address it. That's very hard to do, very mm-hmm. very hard to do. Because very often people will turn their guns on you, yeah. um, and try to attack you. And what do you think? You're better than me. You're more spiritual than me. Or think your family's better than mine? It's like no, we're not 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 really. But this thing that you're doing, you got to stop yeah. this. So, yeah, that's that's the fun part of ministry. Well, that is, isn't that like human nature? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Somebody 
somebody calls out an offense in you, your first thing is to justify yourself somehow. Mm -hmm. Put the gloves up, I'm sure. Okay, point four. <clears throat> For the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church are to proceed by, and this is very important here, admonition. Okay, that's the first thing. Meaning you tell someone, you got to stop this. You can't keep doing this. Okay, and if they won't, then suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season. It's, all right, you can't take communion here for a while. And then, by excommunication from the church, <clears throat> according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. Okay, so excommunication means that the elders of the church have judged that you are not a Christian. We don't regard you to be a believer anymore because you're committing this sin and you won't stop. Um, and we, you know, the gospel and God's word is not having any effect on, on your course of action. And so um, the church has to be holy. It's got to be set apart from the world. If the church is exactly like the world. It really isn't the church then. So, All right. Chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies <clears throat> as are commonly called synods or councils, or, or, or uh, general assemblies, or, you know, whatever you want to call them, presbytery meetings. And it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches, by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction, to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. Okay? So we're not independent Baptists. <laughs> okay, we believe in the what, what we call the regional church, that churches should be connected or try to be connected to each other. Okay, point number two. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. So that's why we have you know, a book of church order, where here are the procedures that we've agreed on that we're, we're going to follow. Uh, and if they're not followed, then you can you can complain. You can offer a complaint um, against um, whoever. And if and if that's not followed, then you have to leave. <laughs> Which we did. <laughs> so, just FYI. Okay. Uh, point three. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err and many have erred. <laughs> now, they put that in there because Rome, Rome thought it has never erred. They can't err. We can't make mistakes. And they're like, no, you have, and the church has made mistakes in the past and has made errors in the past. And one of the reasons we know that the church has done that is we're, we're told, 2 Timothy 3.16, that passage a lot of people have memorized. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. Mm -hmm. remember asking, I used to get on these, I, don't, I haven't done this in like 15 years, but I used to get on these Catholic web forums and argue with Roman Catholics until the, until the cows came home. But one, I started a thread one time, cited that verse and emphasized that term correction and asked, how does scripture correct the Roman Catholic Church? And they just went nuts with it. But one of them finally just said, um, it doesn't. It can't. 
we we can't be corrected. So well, I they know. don't. They don't. Well, they they are not as literate on scripture when because I have a oh, yeah. devout oh. Catholic cousin that I always end up and we have the discussion about inherently good or evil yeah. over over mm-hmm. the Christmas break and he kept saying well I think no there's a seed of goodness in all people Yikes. that's cloaked in I was like no no <laughs> we're rotten to the core yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I said there may be some manly goodness that we see evident yeah. come out in somebody but mm-hmm. but that's not who we really are yeah. you know isn't that amazing? That's the very same argument and debate that Pelagius and Augustine had, you know, 1,600 years ago. That's what the Pelagians said. No, 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 there's still a little a little bit of, of good that we can improve on, and that's the key to everything. And Augustine's like, no, there's none of that. And that's what the Reformation said, too. Scripture teaches that we're disabled. We're, we can't do what God has asked us to do. Well, and he, he kept going back to the, the, you know, we have, Adam had some vestiges of goodness that have, came down and I said no Adam made the decision to do what he mm-hmm. did which was deception which that's right became his nature mm-hmm. and that's been handed down to us yeah and that really is a denial of original sin that well, we, that's yeah. exactly what he was yeah that's what it all goes back to and, um, and yeah. you know I just get it from the Catholics that I talk to they're not they don't rely on scripture yeah they don't need it yeah, we have, we have an infallible church that tells us what to believe. Yeah, yeah. We we were talking about that with John and Luke. They just they they were studying in their church history the Augustinian Pelagian controversy, and I said that you guys noticed this is exactly like the Calvinist Arminian debates, mm-hmm. and it's just like the debates that we have now over free will is is man able to do this or that? It all goes back to what do you think the fall did to us? And for many, it's well, it certainly hurt us. It certainly made it harder. But it didn't snuff out completely our ability to do this or that. But scripture over and over again, man is not able, not able, not able. And that's what Augustine saw. And that's what our guys have all seen. Like, is this, the problem is much worse than you think. Well, that's it. That's in the, in the Old Testament where the Jews falling away, falling away, mm-hmm. falling away, yeah. falling away. Just, yeah. <laughs> Just demonstrating it again and again. You can read through yeah. that and get that. That's yeah. why that's there telling the story. Yeah, the whole history of Israel is a giant lesson in the need for an entirely well, gracious salvation. That's why you have like movements in Israel today where you have Jews that are starting to accept or you know cling to Christ. Yeah, and, and you know really mm-hmm. get that He was their Messiah. He yeah, was there. There's a lot of them out there. My parents support a group called Jews for Jesus. And yeah, you know, my mom will tell me that she gets their newsletters and stuff. These people are fearless. Oh, they are. Yeah, they are. They, are, they have no fear because once once a Jewish person <laughs> comes to Christ, it's like they get it and have an incredible zeal, especially for their own their own people. Just like Paul did. Paul said, "I could wish that I myself were a curse, so that they would believe." But, well, they were all Jews. Yeah, they were. <laughs> all of them were. Yeah, Paul was one of the worst ones. So. Okay, point number four. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. <laughs> That's important. In other words, we're not political parties. Okay, you deal with church matters. Okay, and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary. I used to write letters because of this 
to hear and think, yeah, that's what we're supposed to. You petition the government and tell them, you guys are doing wrong, and you're under the judgment of God for what you're doing. But that's all we can do. We don't try to engage in armed revolution or anything. We simply say, this is what the law of God says, your creator, that you're accountable to, and you should stop this. Okay, that's, and that's what the church should do. Or by way of advice, for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Okay, well, so aren't, the, aren't we getting into that now, though, where the, the, the state has involved themselves in marriage? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and with, with the homosexual marriage movement, there, there's yep. going to be more that comes to that. And that was a yeah. watershed. You know, we're going to see yeah. all kinds of a marriage... And that's a concern. And I have yeah, no that, idea where it's going to end up, but I've already seen articles about polygamists and yep. you know that coming into it. So that plus you also have there's homosexual couples that are going to churches that they think might not be friendly to it to say we want you to marry us, and, and of course the church is going to say no, we're not yeah. going to do that. But we actually have a policy where you have to be a member mm-hmm. of our church um, for me to do your wedding plus i also it's part of our policy i don't solemnize marriages anymore i don't sign the documents and that that's that's to protect us uh from that kind of thing because if the government ever comes in and says you have to do this we're gonna say no there's no way i'm gonna stand over um a a, a, that's not marriage and and do something like that well that's where you know to me that's where you get into the magistrate debate with people because we've We've had discussions about where, where does the state end with, with the ruling over, yeah. You, I mean, and, and you know when it to me clearly when it violates God, God's mm-hmm. commandments for us. That's yes. There is so much that the state is doing and does today that is unbiblical. It is appalling. Yeah. All the welfare stuff, charity that used to be done by families and the church. Mm-hmm. And the reason it doesn't work with the state is there's no accountability. Mm-hmm. You throw money at people and you don't have a relationship with them, that's just going to corrupt them. And that's exactly what it has done. Well, today it's it's a political <coughs> means. Mm-hmm. They're buying votes. votes yeah, exactly. With it, right? Same with all the immigration and everything. It, the yeah. government should have never been about <laughs> what can I get out of it, mm-hmm. right? But that's how everybody goes into the voting booth. You know, what's yeah. in it for me? Yeah, you know? how will this affect me monetarily? That's right. Uh, remember the Obama phone lady? Oh, Obama yeah. gave us a phone. Okay, yeah, yeah never mind. We talk about that. <laughs> Obama phone. Okay. Chapter 32. Of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal subsistence. They immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Why do you think they put that there? Purgatory. Purgatory. There's no Purgatory. Okay, point two. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different, different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. 
Okay, three, the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor, and be made conformable to his own glorious body. Now, have you guys ever, ever heard of the, the resurrection body can pass through walls and do things like that? That That's something you hear sometimes. Um, when I was in seminary, the, the, re, the reason people say that is because it says in, at the end of John's gospel, after Jesus rose from the dead, and the disciples were in a room with the door shut, mm-hmm. and then Jesus you know, appeared in their midst. Well, he just walked through the door, and, and you go... When I took Johannine literature in seminary, Guy Waters, who's a really good New Testament scholar, <laughs> says, you know, guys, you'll hear, you know, people think that our resurrection body can, like, pass through stuff. Um, he said the, the doors were shut because they were afraid, and they probably just opened the door yeah. <laughs> and let him come in. <laughs> yeah. But there's nothing here about him passing through anything. Yeah. Now, we know Jesus, of course, could, like, he could appear and, like, reappear yeah. Whatever and God has certainly has that ability. I, I don't think that we can necessarily deduce from that that we'll be able to like beam ourselves wherever we want. Yeah. If we can, that would be cool. But yeah. I don't. I don't know if we can. If we'll be able to. You know, the grand scheme that who cares. I know. I know. I'll just be thankful to be in heaven. Yeah. You know, if we yeah. can. Yeah. Can our, can we beam ourselves wherever we want? <laughs> okay. Last chapter. Here we go. God hath appointed a day, wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. See, now people hear that and think, well, I thought thought we were justified by faith alone. Well, the judgment of works is for rewards, not for our salvation from sin. Okay, point two. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and, and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Okay. So there you have the, the final judgment. It will be a, a day that every human being that's ever lived will be brought before the, the all-knowing God. And um, those that are in Christ will be acquitted. They'll be just pronounced righteous in the sight of God. But there, there is a judgment of our works for rewards. And there's also a judgment of the wicked by their works for degrees of punishment in hell. And um, I was listening to uh, R.C. Sproul again. I was listening to him this past week, and he, he mentioned that um, people will say, look, I've already committed this sin. I might as well go all the way and do do the rest of it. And he, he shared that with a professor one time when he was a student in, in either in Amsterdam in Europe or in seminary. He said the professor just recoiled when he said that and said, listen, 
in hell, God's justice that he brings against the wicked is exactly according to justice. Mm -hmm. And every sinner in hell would give anything they had to have committed one less sin because of what they are experiencing at the hands of God's justice. You think, wow. Well, in the the sanctification walk, there's, I just feel, you know, as I'm growing older, I am made aware and convicted of more things Mm -hmm. that I was kind of passe about years ago. Yeah. And I mean, Mm -hmm. so I don't see how a Christian could say that, you know, if I'm sinning, I'll just sin more because what's the... It's an irrational and crazy way to think. Because our, you know, I always look at it as a man, our role is to be, to grow into something in older life that younger men would want to aspire to. Right. You know, that right. you, you set yourself up as an example. And, and that's one thing, if you, if you do, if you are ordained as an officer in any capacity, that's the one thing to always bear in mind is that you're an example that people look at you and your life and the way you handle trials and the way you handle everything mm-hmm. is this is the way a godly man is supposed to handle everything because it's so easy even you know for a christian man who's seasoned a little bit to turn in on ourselves and to have pity parties for ourselves and to mm-hmm. be angry or to be frustrated or whatever but you're an example the way you respond to everything is being watched and it's on a different level if you are an officer and people are really looking at how does this guy handle trials? How does he handle this or that when it happens? Does he withdraw? Does he do what's right? Does he do this or do that? But that is one thing that's a, a huge deal. First Peter chapter five, that whole little section there. In fact, let's, let's look at that in closing. First Peter five is a, a great text of scripture on officers in the church. It, it's primarily about elders, but by extension, I think it refers to anyone that um, holds any office in the church. First Peter five one. <clears throat> the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And then verse three, first Peter five three. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And that that Greek word there is tupas, where we get the word type. Like you are a type. You are a, a picture of what every man wants to be, like like you said. Everyone should look at you and think, that's the kind of Christian man I want to be. That's the kind of Christian husband I, I want to be. Not as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That's right. To try to the epitome is to try to not well never attain it. Always the goal to yep to be. And the hardest thing, as you guys probably already know, if, you, if in life is I don't want to be conformed to the image of Christ like this. In your sovereign decree, providence, and plan, I don't want to be conformed to the image of Christ in these ways. 
I want to be conformed in a different way. But you have to you resign yourself and submit to his plan, whatever that is. It, it's good. I'm sure Job didn't appreciate being conformed to the image of Christ the way he was. Um, but that's the key, is the way we respond to the blessing, the days of blessing and the, the things that are really hard. That is... Um, the way we respond to those things needs to be the way we, we hope every Christian in the world responds to such things. And that's the real challenge of, of the Christian life in general, but especially if you're an officer in the church, because everyone's looking to you to be an example of self-control, an example of a patience with divine providence and uh, of godliness in your marriage and with your kids, with whatever's going on. Um, that's the real challenge for sure. All right, so next time we'll start uh, plowing into the book, uh, The New Testament Deacon Minister of Mercy, which is a great, great little book. Uh, have you guys had a chance to read any of it yet? Or? Yeah, I've read some. Okay, okay. This one? Yeah, yeah, that one. Okay, yeah. 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 <clears throat> I've listened to the big one. Oh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the... Um, That's uh, a long book just to listen to. I can imagine <laughs> reading it. Yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you read through it yet? I, I've, I've listened to quite a bit of it, but yeah, that one's... I've read, I've read through this one. Okay, good, good. All right. All right, well, let me let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time to be with my brother. It's always encouraging to uh, think about and talk about the great things you have revealed to us, things we would have no way of knowing uh, outside of uh, you speaking to us in Scripture. Make us devout students of your word, um, followers of Christ, and help us to, to love the wife you've given each of us. As Jesus loves the church to have a single-minded devotion to her, and to love our children, and to love your people, and to be godly examples to all who see and know us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.